Hello and welcome to the Area 831 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Gaither. My regular co-host, Emily, is out on special assignment. She will be back soon. In the meantime, you have me and our producer, Joe Betancourt, hosting today's episode. And before we start, please take a moment to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us also on the interwebs at area831podcast.com. Hey, Michael, before we get into today's episode, let me ask you something. Are you thirsty? That's our producer, Joe Betancourt, who's joining me today. Uh, yes, I am, because complete full disclosure for all of us listening, and thank you for listening, is um, we're recording this little intro piece tonight after we talk to our special guest this afternoon, Jean Bargetto, the director of winemaking at Bargetto Winery in SoCal. So we talked for an hour about wine in history in California and France, and, and afterwards I was really, really thirsty, but I thought it's noon 30. I don't want to get into that habit, but right now it's o'clock at night, so I'm good. There's a bottle of Pinot open next to me. Um, it's a great conversation. Let's go uh, meet and uh, talk with John Bargetto. John, nice to meet you virtually. I think we've met in person probably somewhere. We were talking before we recorded about it. It's a small county and you, you meet yes. everybody and that's a lovely thing, but it's, yeah, it's good I, to get a chance to, yeah. Happy to meet you guys on the screen, let's say, and then uh, I'll, I'll recognize you even more next time we're out and about. Nice. And we'll get that tour we were talking about before the yes. recording started too. Yes. That'll be great. My, my pleasure. So, so I, I think my, my wife and I discovered you, uh, your winery years ago when we first discovered mead back in the days when you were making pomegranate wine, that was a, right, right, right. which I think was pretty labor intensive. If I recall the story behind it. Right. Well, we're happy to have you introduced to Bargetto, whether it's reserve Pinot Noir, which is near and dear to my heart or one of the Chaucer's brand, uh, products. Yes. Yeah. My, my father started producing that. Right. Back in the late 1960s. Wow. Fruit wines. And, you know, we still produce Chaucer's mead under the Chaucer's brand, but we don't produce the fruit wines anymore. Okay. And we've kind of evolved more and more to an estate Pinot Noir winery nice. where we're growing all these great grapes out in Coralitos up above right. where you guys are today. Yeah. And as for, for listeners who are out of the area, possibly don't know, we are kind of in Pinot country. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would say that. Uh, you know, our region, Santa Cruz Mountains, is is best known for Pinot Noir. We have wonderful Chardonnays in the area. We don't want to forget about the queen of the white wines. Right. Or Cabernets, particularly when we get to warmer areas up in Los Gatos, Gilroy, and such. Where did Bargetto Winery start? And you are one of the oldest wineries in California, if I'm, if I'm not correct. Right, yes. So our story, depending on how far we want to go back, but I like to go back to the beginning in California, mm -hmm. where the brother of my great-grandfather, 1889, was here. Our grandfather settled in in, in 1890, okay, working for Casa Dalmas uh, up in Mountain View, and he brought his eldest child, who was his son, Filippo, and he was the winemaker in the family. Mm -hmm. And understand that that's what these people did, the Bargettos, in this town, in the Osti area of Piemonte, for apparently 300 years, because we have all sorts of church records, you know, marital records, and they were winemakers for those centuries. And then 1890 times were tough. Economically, the weather was terrible in northern Italy for most of a decade, as I got some oral history from one of my uncles and uh california was the dream california was the place to be so they came mm -hmm. out there was a family winery in san francisco that they owned starting in 1910 they ran that up to close to prohibition period and then they moved down to socal bought the property that we're on now in about 1920 and then on repeal day people always get a kick out of that that we opened up on repeal day december 5 <laughs> 1933 and the joke is of course they had wine all produced and all they had to do was stay up late that night and label it and start selling it that next day december they were prepared yeah. they were ready to roll yes yeah. so in terms of generations i i don't like to forget the first generation giuseppe and his brother who also lived on this property as the first generation so i'd be part of the fourth generation in the in the region and my kids and i keep praying that they're going to come back and work with their father someday not yet but someday mm -hmm. yeah. they would be part of the fifth generation in the santa cruz mountains wow 
And you have siblings yourself, right? So you have a brother and I think a sister who, and yes. they have children, maybe, I don't know, um, yes. is, is, are their kids in the business as well? Um, right, right. We're a big family. I come from a generation of 15. So if you can imagine 15 of us growing up on this property, five in my immediate family. So four siblings and myself, 10 cousins. Okay. We, we grew up working in the winery. And having you know getting up to all sorts of shenanigans as you can, can imagine 15 children growing up in this italian setting and uh, yes i have nieces and nep nephews but i work with two of my siblings so my sister loretta is the president of the winery technically my boss and my my older brother martin is here as well it's a lot of history and a lot of family that's wonderful yes yes now in the california michael you asked so on the california front Mm -hmm. My research, I count us as being tied for the 10th oldest winery gotcha. in okay. California, because a lot of the old wineries, Martini and Napa, Sagacio and Sonoma, they've been sold off to Gallo or Treasury or some big conglomerate. Yeah. So then I moved their date up to Gallo's date, let's say, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's December 533. So at 90 years, I say we're tied for 10th, you know, yeah. a few wineries of that, but there are, there are, there are a few older. Yeah, but you're still Bargetto and you're still self-owned. Same, same family. Yeah, same, right. same family. And certainly we're the oldest in this region in the same Yeah, mountains. yeah, yeah. So was in the, sorry, Michael, real quick, in oh, terms yeah. of California and come, being in the Bay Area in San Francisco, now I'm not that up, I'm not a, a wine historian by any means, right. but, you know, with Napa being like the hotspot, let's say for California wines, is there what's, I don't know if Napa was Napa then, right in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but I'm just wondering what led to your family moving yeah. south yeah. instead of moving um, north out of the Bay? Right. Good question. Yeah. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. There's always a little randomness. You could ask me why did they didn't go to Argentina? Because all sorts mm. of Italians <laughs> at that same era went to Argentina, started the wine industry down there, and have made their huge contribution. Um, but again, California um, was the dream for so many Italians. And somehow they knew, I don't have all the details, but somehow they knew about this winery called Casa Dalmas, that by the way, was the largest winery in America at the time. And you, you gentlemen have probably never heard of it. No one's heard mm, of it. It no. was kind of the gallo of the time, 1890. So there was kind of two main wine centers in um, California. I, I think we could say three uh, in 1890. So Napa Valley was significant. Okay. But the Santa Clara Valley and the Santa Cruz Mountains area combined had a number of acres as much as Napa back then. Hmm. And then Southern California, we don't think of it today, but we're going back to 1890s um, in Los Angeles area, Southern California, there was tremendous plantings and wineries down there. So somehow they had a letter, I do know this because this comes from the family history, they had a letter of introduction. And back then, if you wanted to work in California, if you had a letter of introduction from someone to go work at a winery and helped out. So someone kind of vouched for them as solid people, hard workers. Certainly they didn't speak English or have any money, um, but they were winemakers. So they got that introduction to Casa Dalmas in Mountain View. And that's why they ended up in the hmm. networking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later, you know, they were ambitious. The father had gone back and then, but Filippo stayed here. And then the family had that winery in San Francisco for those years. And that's something they owned, at least the business, if not the land. Sure. So they went to San Francisco. Uh, grapes were railed up, you know, from Santa Clara Valley, Santa Cruz Mountains. And the name of that place is interesting because it's called the South Montebello Vineyard and Wine Company. Interesting name in mm -hmm. San Francisco with the famous Montebello name. In, in the name of the company, you know, Vineyard Wine Company. So, um, that yeah, yeah, and, and so I, I, I guess so. Was so Santa Cruz and Santa Clara Valley? They were always grape growing regions. I don't think I realized it went back that far. Yes, and the number that we have during that era was about fourteen thousand acres in the area. My goodness, thousand acres right now in the Appalachian. So now I'm gonna just speak about the Santa Cruz Mountain Appalachian. Sure. 
We're about at 1,500 acres only, 1,500, you know. So it was a huge area. And of course, this is long, long before, you know, Santa Clara Valley became Silicon Valley. And it mm-hmm. was all of nurseries and vineyards. It was farmland. Roads. It was farmland. Yeah. I mean, imagine yeah. you're an immigrant and you come to Santa Clara and you got this soil and you got this weather. And they're like, this is Shangri-La. Yeah. Everything grows, huh? Yeah, you've got the Mediterranean climate. You've got you've yeah. got people growing. And it was amazing, yeah. I bet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what I imagine, like if you're driving down 101 past like um, King City and you're getting into Paso Robles, it's like yeah. miles and miles and miles of vineyards um, yes. um, out through there. So I imagine that's probably what Santa Clara felt like mm-hmm. back in those days where it's mm-hmm. just like, oh, this land must be so fertile. And um you know it's nothing but vineyard um right 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 you're you're right about monterey county monterey (laughs) county um in terms of acreage equals napa or um or surpasses i think there might actually be more acreage the last number i looked at napa valley was about forty thousand acres and monterey county was about fifty thousand acres so monterey kind of got discovered if you will um you know in the 60s and 70s people went down there and they were looking for cooler climate that's what they were after because let's think about napa valley world famous for cabernet i always say no one's gonna take cabernet sauvignon away from napa valley but you can't grow great pinot noir in napa you gotta have a coast it's it's simply too hot i mean unless you come down to carneros the people i don't want to offend my comrades in Carneros because now we've got the you know cooler bay water and bay air coming in um, but Monterey County is famous for cool climate viticulture so that's why they went down there oh, okay that makes a lot of sense yeah you know when something you brought up in your email to me was um you know 133 years later you guys are still here um you know, <laughs> you know, I, you I said it's easier way to make money. I think yeah, I said there's that. an there's an easier way to make <laughs> yeah. money. I mean, what I, I like, I know the like, I feel like uh, there's a handful of families in the Santa Cruz area that are have legacy, right? Like, I feel like the Canfield family, the Whiting's family at the, oh, yeah. the boardwalk, and yourself. So I, I feel like, you know, all of this legacy um, within the area. And I'm just wondering, like you said, there's easier ways to make money. What, what's kept Bargetto running all these years, generation after generation. Yeah. It's, I'm glad we're glad you're here. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. yeah right. No, I, I get it. It's gotta be in your DNA. Right. Right. And, and, and sometimes I tell people that my uncle Ralph, who had been in the wine business from the time he graduated in 1949, Santa Clara university till the early sixties, he was working for the family winery, our, our winery but there just were too many chillins, right? Too many kids. So he went into real estate. And as much as I love the wine business, cause it's in my blood, as you can imagine, after these, you know, 37 years of professional, I kept thinking he sold his real estate company 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And it was like a gold mine. Nobody in the family went into real estate, you know, because mm-hmm. there was this huge business. He had the largest real estate firm in the county back in the eighties and nineties. And so you can imagine what an opportunity that would have been for someone in the family to take over that business. Yeah. But so not just me, but yeah. others of us that were just drawn to the aspect of, of wine. We grew up on the property. We grew up working in the winery, in the retail room, in production. Uh, we had a few small vineyards back then that my father established, but no major estate vineyard like we have now in Coralitos. Um, so I think it's just the draw. My mother would always say the wine business is a, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. And if you like the lifestyle about producing a product of good health when enjoyed in moderation, mm-hmm. uh, bringing joy to people, um, participating in retail business, uh, being able to travel and, and be in the wine business and all the, all the pluses that come um, with being in the winery. So we've always had someone um, I probably should mention my father at this at this point because we've honored him and this year's Levita. You know, we have this elite uh, uh, Levita wine brand, and every year we change the label. And so we just um, we decide to honor him because if it wasn't for my father, so let's just dial back the clock for a minute, back to 1963, 
right? So that's 60 years ago. And my grandfather who had founded the winery was dying. The old wine tanks were empty. The debt was high on the winery. And everyone just told my dad, get out before you lose your house, you know? And this was before the big upswing in the 1970s, right? Um, the wine boom, as we call it. And so my father with his intelligence and determination and innovation and ideas, little by little, you know, the winery grew and stabilized to where we are today. Yeah. Um, so if it wasn't for him, then we would be in condos, <laughs> nine nice Creekside <laughs> condominiums. Yeah, uh, and, and, yeah. So, so, so back then, what was some of the innovations you did to, or your father did to kind of right. to like recover and yeah, keep going? Yeah, no, good idea. Good question. Okay, so let's start with complimentary wine tasting. So imagine it's 1963, and I don't think these houses across the street were even built. So Cal was pretty quiet, and he offered complimentary wine tasting to consumers, okay? Mm -hmm. that, that was kind of unheard of. Then he went down to uh, Cannery Row, Monterey, where we've had a tasting room for 55 years or more, and opened up a taste room there when Cannery Row was, was dead. I mean, it was a bunch of old warehouses and sardine factories, you know, and then all of this. So he had a vision, you know, about providing free wine tasting. Ahead of his time, yeah. Um, all the different wines we produce and have sort of changed and developed through the years. Um, I think starting the wine club. So my cousin Jim, with um, my dad's blessing, started what we believe is the first wine club in the state of California. So imagine this, now there's 5,000 wineries, right? Every winery has a wine club. Nobody had a wine club in 1981 because no one thought about it. No one was positioned like us with these tasting rooms. So mm -hmm. that was a huge thing. Now every winery, it's like the lifeblood of their business. Right. Have right. a you know subscription type arrangement with with customers. So um, that that's been a very vital thing to our business and all sorts of other wineries um, as well. That was hugely innovative. I mean, yeah, I would say that was a big one. Yeah. Yeah, and so, so going back then, did wineries just not offer wine? You would just go in and buy a bottle of wine and go on your merry way. Right. Wow. Yeah, I, were, I can't even imagine that time. Yeah. It's there, always... there were a few bonded wineries in Santa Cruz County, some mm -hmm. that were open maybe um, for as far as the tasting part, maybe we're open one day a week and we were open mm -hmm. every day of, of the week. We, my dad was like the king of retail. We, you're going to have a hard time <laughs> believing this. We were open on Easter. My dad was a very Christian man. But right. he was not going to miss a half a day, so we'd be open, and they would close a little bit early, three o'clock, and we'd go down for a family barbecue, you know. And so <laughs> I, I would say we were only closed, probably Christmas, and probably Thanksgiving. We probably were closed two days back then, as all yeah. Christmas and Thanksgiving. I think that's it. Everything else. Wow. Yeah. Well, and wine, like talking about wines, you know, it's it's health, it's in moderation, it's a wonderful thing. It's a it's a it's a not product. It's a thing that brings people together too. So it yeah. makes sense to be open all the time and make it available. And the, uh, having the wine club idea, like, yeah, every winery does it now and it yeah. keeps their customers coming back and they do special yes. events and it keeps them happy and it just keeps them coming back and bringing people along with them. Yes, absolutely. You know, no, you yeah. know you've got it. I mean, we could, I could go on for, I don't want to go on too much, but you know, innovation, we, we go, let's go back to the 1930s and 40s. Okay, what do Americans know about wine in the 1930s and 40s? Next to nothing, next to nothing. They'll, they've heard of the name Chablis as kind of a white wine. They've heard right. of the name Burgundy as a white wine. They've heard of Chianti, you know, mm -hmm. the European generic names. And so, yes, we made some jug wines, but we always had varietal wines. Let's go back to 1933, 34. We had a wine called Zinfandel. We had a wine called Riesling. Who was bottling varietal wines in the 1930s? So talk about ahead, this is my grandfather's time, right? Mm -hmm. so talk about ahead of the wave, ahead of the wave. Yeah. yeah. And you obviously had, a, had a, a client base for that because you were making it and obviously selling it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes, yes. Was that unique to Bargetto or were there other small wineries sort of doing that as well? Well, again, in our region, it wasn't really to the 1960s where some wines. So yeah. David Bruce got started in the 60s, the great okay. Boulder Creek. Yeah. And, and, he, and he helped 
put the, the, the region on the map. Ridge, you know, to this day is the most famous and far-reaching mm-hmm. brand, you know, around the country, around the world. And yeah. Montebello wines and their wonderful wines, you know, they, they brought up. My hope is that someday one of these um, French champagne producers will come here and make a major investment and plant like 200 acres and make a very high-end, we can't call it champagne, right? Sparkling wine. Sparkling wine. Right. It would do that. Sort of like what Roterer did uh, up in Mendocino, because I visited them just a couple months ago, and they went up there. But see, given our region, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that do so well here, Mm -hmm. those are the two classic varietals for sparkling wine champagne. So this is just a pet dream of mine that... I don't well, know. Your family's always been forward thinking, so you never yeah. know. What could well, if I come across some Frenchmen are considering, I would be happy to give them a nudge. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, keeping on history, I, this is really good for our listeners too. So what happened to wine in California in the 1970s? When did it kind of, for lack of a better word, blow up and become yes. what did it, what we know now? Right, right. And I would say it was the 70s. Um, uh, I'll give a little, a little example. So my father tried to buy a piece of property in Coralitos. Mm-hmm. And that's a longer story, but we'll save that for another time. And the deal fell through, but he had already ordered 14,000 grapevines. So this is 1973, mm-hmm. 72, 73. And by good fortune, Americans and Californians had discovered wine. So people were really getting into wine. I mean, it was time. Right. It was mm-hmm. And then people like to have their little vineyards. So they started planting 50, you know, vines, 100 vines. So my like hobby farms kind of at that time. Yeah. So then yeah. my we had the nursery. They were all planted in front of the winery as a kid. I remember. And then we would sell them to customers along with wine and a few vines. Mm, OK. Um, so, you know, a big thing that took place in, in the 70s, because, Michael, you asked about the 70s, mm-hmm. was the judgment in Paris. And you guys have probably heard about that famous wine tasting, right? The judgment in Paris. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, yes. yes. Blind wine, wine yep. tasting, right? Mm-hmm. And the French are the world famous. The French wines are mm-hmm. world famous, right? And so now they take, let's say, 10 California wines from Napa Valley and some from Santa Cruz. David Bruce and, and um, uh, Ridge was include, were included with these famous first growth French wines, blind tasting. The blind, ta- the blind tasting, yes. They call it the judgment yes, yes, yes. of Paris. And guess what? The American wines, pardon my French English, kick butt, right? right. Kick butt. And it was like, whoa. So that gave a little bit of a boost, mm-hmm. right? That gave us. So yeah. we, we record that date as an important date in the history of. Um, it's like, hmm, what's going on over there in California yeah, in the yeah. U.S.? Yeah, yeah. And just while you're asking about that, because um, I've given a couple talks this year, that, you know, how new our industry is, it wasn't until 1967 that table wines, even that they're bulk, mainly they were bulk, you know, jug wines, let's call them, jug sure. wines. Back Lancers, in things like that. Or like, yeah, yeah, Gallo, yeah, yeah. Carlo Rossi and all this kind of stuff surpassed right. the consumption of dessert wine. So in 1966, we'll go back one year, 1968, Americans were drinking more sweet wines, dessert wines, ports, sherries with their dinner, if you can mm-hmm. imagine, you know, and all this stuff, more than table wines. So 67 was the first year that table wines surpassed dessert wines. And that's less than 60 years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so that that's just kind of a reminder, you know. Speaking of of history uh, of wine and just history in general, wine has been around thousands of years. Yes. Right. Like from, you know, as uh, someone who was raised Catholic, like wine is very much peppered throughout the Bible and Catholicism, whatever. So I wonder the Christians, even the moderate Christians recognize the wine wine of the Last Supper. (laughs) So I'm wondering how the wine then and why now because i know like now wineries have like there's like scientists involved and there's like a lot of a lot more like looking at the soils and whatnot. i'm just wondering how wine has evolved uh, from from like ancient times right to to right. today and when people and this is a i'm a rambling question but when people yeah. started going to college to right. like master you know in winemaking um right. 
and it be it's become kind of more instead of like a, a leisurely you know like i'm portuguese my uncles grow grapes in their backyards and they're making they call it wine i call it <laughs> not wine portuguese diesel is what we call uh, it uh, um so my neighbor's been, Portuguese, and we get a bottle every Christmas. Thank yeah, you, John. I, 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 I like I like to try. Make sure it doesn't have any diesel in it, but I'm happy to try it just to see what the rugged, <laughs> rugged Portuguese and it's all red wine. I'm sure. That's oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They but, don't yeah. drink that. White wine is like no. They're like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, well, I guess I'm trying to understand. Like, wine's been around for so long, right? right? And it's part of like the DNA and the fabric of like right, culture. Right. That when did it? Yeah. When when did it kind of like go through its industrial revolution? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. No, I, no, I get you. Yeah. So it has been an evolution. So we talk about 90 years, you know, which is a relatively short time in the history of mankind. Okay. Because mm-hmm. wine has been enjoyed for 10, five, 10,000 years, you know, so 90 years in California. And we're still the new kids on the block. We have to be clear, California, we're a new industry. Um, I just came from Bordeaux, France, okay, a cruise. I was the winemaker on board. I had to give a couple talks. And there's evidence, of course, winemaking in Bordeaux back to the Roman period. So they have 2,000 years of winemaking there. And in particular, the last two to 300 years when they've really grown. Um, certainly to get at your question, certainly in 1970s, when the wine boom started to happen, then people start paying more attention and people want to get into growing grapes and making wine. So then they're more inclined to go get education. I went to UC Davis. I was the first in my family, you know, to actually get a degree in winemaking. Um, but plenty of people other do as well. And now down in Cal Poly, you know, uh, State University, they have the biggest uh, wine education program, bigger than Davis. And that just shows how, how much that region has grown down there and how much the industry has grown because now we have a whole nother university. So it's three, so it's Fresno State, UC Davis, and, um, and Cal Poly. Um, the other aspect of your question is, I just would say that the industry has evolved. We become more European, I, I would say, in terms of the sophistication of, just think about like 50 years ago, we didn't have access to all these oak barrels. Uh, in the end, winemaking is sort of good juice going into good barrels. But in the old days, I would say we would never do it like this again, but now it's kind of come full circle. My dad used to buy used whiskey barrels. There weren't a lot of barrels available. He didn't have a lot of money. So you'd buy used whiskey barrels, lots of those every year being generated, right? Clean them out and then age wine. I'd say, oy vey. Oh my God, I can't imagine. <laughs> but get, guess what's happening as a, you can call it a fad, something new in California. There's wineries aging red wines in bourbon barrels. And they're doing the same. The bourbon people are doing the same thing in wine barrels. So yeah, so what's old is kind of new again. I still, I don't get it. I've tried some of the wines. It's not our thing. Uh, I wouldn't call it a European thing, okay, in a classic mm-hmm. winemaking sense. But just in terms of the techniques, and we all learn from each other around around the world, you know, how to take better care of our soils. Um, one thing that I'm proud of is that our vineyard and winery are both certified sustainable. So we use, you know, mushroom compost to keep our soil healthy. We've stopped using uh, Roundup. We use cultivators to deal with weeds. We have horses that are out eating weeds you know, and creating some manure and breaking up the soil. Um, So there is, that's one thing that's evolved through the years is just a better understanding of soil health is critical to vine health and therefore good wine. And to be a good steward of nature as well. Yeah. Um, It starts with farming anyway. So yes, it starts with farming. Yeah. 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 What does, you know, I, I, cause I, I, Joe and I hung out at Discretion Brewing has a, a new bourbon barrel aged beer. This is off topic. What does bur- what do what do bourbon barrels bring to red wine? I don't think I've had that. Mm, um, it's going to bring some oak because <clears throat> you can still extract sure. some oak, assuming that the uh, yeah. especially if it's a one year old bourbon barrel. So you're still going to go. You're going to get a little bourbon flavor in there. You know, 
And I can't imagine using a white wine because it dominates, but on a robust yeah. Cabernet, you know, it's going to give a little element there of, you know, a little bourbon. I, I just say it's, to me, it's Artier. kind of a marketing thing because there's so many people that love bourbon right? in my family. So people <laughs> that love bourbon say, <laughs> hey, honey, they got Cabernet with bourbon, you That'll know? <laughs> Bourbon barrel. That's, that's how the wives can bring the, the husbands that don't like to drink wine. They, yes. It's in bourbon barrels. I, yeah. I, I played a winery up in Sonora uh, earlier this year, and and they they have a beer they have a, a special beer room now because they say the, the wives bring the husbands and they drink the beer. You know, it's yes. it was marketing. It was marketing. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So, anyway. um, you know, there's there's of course there's differences in just thinking back to to Europe. Um, they don't allow any irrigation in Europe of the vines. So with climate change, I kind of feel for these French wine growers and how much harder it is when you don't have irrigation. Now we, we use a minimum amount, we call it deficit irrigation, just the minimum amount to keep the vines happy. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're allowed none after the vine gets established. So after three years, no, no irrigation. Um, but in terms of you know blending wines and we have so much to be thankful to the french in particular because if you think about the top varietals that we sell in california right so let's start mm -hmm. with chardonnay right sure. that's in burgundy then we got pinot noir from burgundy and we got cabernet and merlot from bordeaux so where would we be without the french right in terms of sure yeah. perfecting all the things they've done for centuries and then we can learn from them you know but they learn from us too and they're trying to make wines different than before not to be aged for 30 years more merlot more fruity to appeal to the american palate so they also want to be part of the biggest wine market in the world which is called the united states of america <laughs> and that, and i should just add that's just 10 years ago yeah. so I, i'm always proud to remind people that my grandfather's time People didn't know Chardonnay from Charlemagne from Charmin tissue. You know what I mean? Yeah. 90 years or let's say 80 years later, which was, you know, uh, 10 years ago, okay, 2013, we became the number one wine consuming nation in the world. Aggregate, just total mm -hmm. consumption. We're not talking about per capita now. Sure. The French, the French are going to have us there. The Italians are going to have us there. The Argentine, mm. Spaniards but just in terms of total wine consumption. So quantity wise, wine has become really part of the, um, um, the fabric of American culture. And you guys see it. What did I see last night on Monday Night Football is I'm just sort of going through, there was an advertisement and some guy was kind of mocking wine a little bit. He says, oh, is it time for us to have our crisp Pinot Grigio? And I said, beautiful. I love it. You know, Pinot Grigio is one of It's in the vernacular. There. It's in coming the vernacular. Out. It's in yeah. the vernacular. <laughs> Happens to be our number one selling wine, too. So I didn't mind nice. national television. Anyway. No. So, so uh, go ahead, Joe. No. I was ahead. just going to ask. So at your location in Soquel today, is that where all of your production and bottling yes. and everything takes place? Yes. It's still there. local. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So all the wines are crushed here. Um, they're aged here. Um, they're bottled here. They're, they're stored in glass here. We have another warehouse that we use down in Castroville as well, but it's, but it's done here. Yeah. This weekend, just to give a little reminder, um, we have two major art shows, one in July, and this is our Christmas art show is this weekend. So I don't know what you boys are doing, but if you're looking for an outing, if you have girlfriends, wives, partners, whatever you have, it's, it's the, one of the two biggest weekends where the sellers turn into a kind of a Christmas fair. Oh, so it's kind of, kind of a fun thing. So I guess these days, what's, I, I, there's, there's, there's so much wine here. Let's, let's localize this a little more. So yep. um, what's, what sets Bargetto apart these days with other, from other Santa Cruz County wines? Yes. Yeah. Yes. How, how can we stand out? How can we compete? And yeah. Michael and Joe. And my question was, how do you still stand out? Because you yes. obviously are. That's what no, I, I know. I, I would do it. And, and it's, um, there's 5,000 wineries in California alone. And we I talk guess. about the world wine market that comes here. So we're going to compete mm -hmm. with all those nations I mentioned, the, the Spaniards, the Italians, the, you know, and the rest. So one thing is we've evolved to um, kind of an estate Pinot Noir um, winery as one of our focuses, okay? 
So because we have Regan Vineyards in Corralitos, because we've been there for 32 years, because mm -hmm. we've uh, planted 13 acres to Pinot Noir, and we've developed these, these different clones that we're growing there, and um, realized to try to stand out and compete with all these wineries, what can we do best? What can we grow best? What can we produce best? Mm -hmm. And I say Pinot Noir, and that's why yeah. we've evolved to seven different Pinot Noirs. And if you don't mind a little, a little plug, we just got our Please best, uh, our best award in the history of the winery from the Wine Enthusiast, which is a major national wine um, publication. We got our highest score, ninety-five points, on our reserve Pinot Noir from Regan Vineyards in Corralitos. So I'm like, that's so good. Congratulations. That's good. And in, in time for our 90th anniversary. Perfect timing. Yes. So that's one thing. And, and we never sit still. I guess the thing is um, we're always trying to innovate. We're always um, pushing for finer quality in wines. How can we keep improving? You know, and there's mm -hmm. all these incremental decisions that we make in production and such to keep improving wines. Um, I'll tell you a new wine. Okay. So there's, there's a class of wines called orange wines. Are you guys familiar with orange? Never, wines? never heard of orange wines. Okay. So you will go to like where I just came from Cabo San Lucas and you'll see like a resort that has like 12 of them listed. It's like a category. Mm -hmm. The idea is in the old days, um, winemakers would ferment the white wines on the skin. You're going to get okay. some color, you're going to get some tannin, you're going to get more complexity and all of this. So there's been kind of this thing, I, the French do it, the Italians do it too, and they call it orange wine. And so we decided to take our Pinot Grigio that we grow in Regan in Corralitos and make an orange wine. Because usually we're going to crush and press the grapes immediately mm -hmm. and just get and ferment the juice in barrels. But this time we said, let's do a 10-day fermentation, keep it cool, 10-day fermentation on the skins. So I call it the red orange Pinot Grigio wine because the color is kind of reddish from mm -hmm. the Pinot Grigio skins from Regan, which I like. Orange is the category. And this is for our wine club. So we're always trying to give them something different. Sure. And then it goes back to like having a wine club. It's, it yes. keeps people interested in the things you're trying to do yes. and it brings them back and they bring yes. people with them and Yes. You know, and it kind of it probably keeps you on your toes, too, because what can we keep doing to keep these people? And it, it helps you keep innovating and thinking, yes. of, new, thinking of new things to do. Absolutely. And we learn from each other. So, sure. you know, Ryan Beauregard is my buddy and he buys grapes from Regan in some years and he treats the grapes differently. And so he's he's one of the first that I saw to make an orange wine from Regan. And then another winery down in Monterey County did it. So after I tasted his Regan orange wine from last year. I said, wow, this is really good. <laughs> you know, I said, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to copy you. <laughs> nice. Anyway, so we're, we're kind and of- And again, you're all working together and figuring out yeah. new things to do. Yeah. And we're like that in the industry. We're collaborative. Yeah. It, it's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I think that goes probably back to the, the fellowship and the art part of making wine too. Same with beer makers, luthiers, people that do some kind of intense craftsmanship to make what they do. They, they tend to work together and communicate. Right talking about like fads i don't want to say orange wine is a fad but like a an innovation in wine um like with breweries a lot of them are like especially the local i don't want to call them micro brews anymore because there's they're everywhere now but um they're they have different variations of like your ipa your hazy your but all this stuff and right. even like martinelli's apparently and this is I, I'm off topic, but Martinelli's decided to get into like the cider, the hard cider game. Hard cider. Like, right. Hey, they're, they've got the apples, you know, why not yes. ferment them and and, yes. and whatnot. So has Bargetto can looked at like, well, why not, you know, try one of these fads of, I mean, I don't want to call this a fad, but I don't think you produce any sparkling wines if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Well, okay. So you, you mentioned Martinelli. I mean, you were talking about families with legacies in the County and I was going to bring up Martinelli. I, I know John Martinelli. And I would say his product is the second favorite liquid product in Santa Cruz County because I, I love his product, you know. And you may know that before Prohibition, they actually made hard cider. That was kind of their business. So Prohibition came in 1919, forced them into the juice product. I didn't know that. Yeah. Such a blessing. Oh. 
So now for 90 years, they've been producing, you know, wonderful apple cider. They ship all over the, the country, right? And then for one of their anniversaries, maybe the 150th or something, John wanted to get back to his roots a little bit. So they have it, uh, maybe it's called 1868, something like that, maybe their founding year. And they have some nice, yeah, hard, hard apple cider. Yeah. Oh. So, you know, to answer your question about sparkling wine, so maybe once every 10 years, the winery makes sparkling wine. And we do it for our anniversary. So if you came to our retail room this weekend, you'll see a 90th anniversary Blanc de Blanc. So it's grapes that we grow in Regan. We make what we call the still wine. We ferment it. You know, you pick the grapes with low sugar, good acidity, and you make the wine. And then we ship it to a specialist who does the sparkling in the bottle. Because that's a whole other technique that we don't have the experience and we don't have the expertise. So a guy up in Sonoma County did it for us. So we do it kind of as a anniversary specialty item. Well, nice. Okay. Pretty, pretty tasty. 100% Chardonnay from Regan. So, so before we started recording, I mentioned that I've been to your vineyard before. I, I went up yeah. there one time. And um, I think your brother was giving a tour. And... It handed out some like Chardonnay grapes for people to taste. And I've never seen a Chardonnay grape before. They're so oh. like small and like, huh? like so a lot, I, they weren't what I was expecting. And then right. I, I tasted the, the grape and it's the sweetest grape I've uh -huh. ever tasted in my life. Right. And right. so I'm just like blown away that this very sweet, juicy yeah. little yes. nugget <laughs> produces you know chardonnay wine like it it blew me away that more right. people you know you only see your purple or conquer grape or red uh, grape or whatever in stores and i mean it's uh it's right. great i guess that uh, they're not selling chardonnay grapes it's right. like produce well, yeah so so table grapes you know table grapes thompson seedless and flame tokay they're delicious they're big berries they have no seeds um, they would make perfectly terrible wine. Now, let's not <laughs> kid ourselves. Thompson Seedless, let's go back to the jug wine days, 1950s and 60s that we talked about. A lot of white wine had Thompson Seedless in it. Why? Came from the valley, cheap as heck, right? Mm. Um, now, wine grapes, of course, have seeds in them. You're right. They're sweet and flavorful. And the reason these wines become so flavorful is because, you know, the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir, all wine grapes have so much flavor. And they're also mm -hmm. sweeter than table grapes, you know, maybe almost twice, you know, maybe almost twice. Yeah, it was time. like eating candy. It was like eating candy. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's why we do, you know, kind of unrelated what we're related, but unrelated. We've started doing wine tastings in Coralitos on Sundays only in, in my little baby brand, Regan. And we give nice. for the viticultural experience. So, Joe, I don't know if you were out there on a Sunday. No, you said you were there with Luke. But then, you know, we give people a chance to taste the juice, to taste the berries, see what they look like, see how small the Pinot Noir berries are, and to see the different clones, and then to see the large, majestic Italian varietals. You know, all these things are on our website if you guys get curious. And Nebbiolo clusters that look like this, and they're like a pound and a half each, you know. Nebbiolo and Dolcetto like that. So it's kind of fun. I just see us as a chance to, you know, further educate people about wine growing and people who really understand wine. And I try to explain to them that really the quality of the wine, and you guys get this, the quality of the wine really comes from the vineyard. So by mm -hmm. the time those grapes are picked, 90% uh, of the character of that wine is determined. Yeah. It's what you start with. You that's can't, you yeah. Start with. yeah what you start with. That's what you start with. And maybe that's what you end with in terms of the character. Right. Now we put it in oak barrels, get some flavor. We, we you know, we have our winemaking techniques, but if you don't have special grapes, you're not going to end up with special wine. Yeah. Kind of like an analogy is if you're recording, if I'm recording and what we start with isn't very good. You can't keep editing it and, right. and making it better. It's got to start with something good. Yeah. Let, let's say you're a singer, Michael, and yeah. you got a cold and you, and you right. got a cold. And now you're going to try to sing into the best microphone in the whole world. It's not going to work. Record that, and you're going to say, how do we, how do we get rid of that nasal? Same there. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Come back when you're a not sick. AI. Yeah. We'll fix it. Stop it! Don't don't even don't don't even go there. And then you don't even need a you don't need a singer like I see in my new Smithsonian magazine. Here I'll hold it up for you guys. You you brought it up. Move over, Michelangelo. What 
would a computer oh, yeah, yeah. would yeah. a computer do the carving of the Pieta or the you know or, or yeah it's or uh, it's a it's a scary scary <laughs> thing I mean no, I, all, think I, all, I think about it believe me yeah. we talked about this uh, a few <clears throat> interviews ago um where I think Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr had a a, a piece of music that John Lennon Lennon had written and they never like made a song out of it and oh. they put the lyrics and like McCartney's playing style and Ringo's drumming style ran it through AI new Beatles song oh is that the uh, one that was released like two weeks ago that I saw it's it new was, it's, it's pretty new. recent new when yeah. it's come forward yes I did see that yeah so are so, you saying AI was part of that re yeah selection yeah. So I didn't know yeah, that yeah yeah. yeah yeah it's but like it wasn't hey, really the Beatles Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, to your thing about AI, um, and I just was given a tour with my youngest daughter, okay, Elisa, and her boyfriend and family, and we're doing a winery tour, and um, the parents are from France, he understands wine, and all this, and we got to the laboratory, and I said, listen, we have this equipment for te testing the wine, you know, because we need to know some basic data. We have computers for staying organized and costing and keeping track of everything. But in the end, the computer does not make the wine and the computer does not decide on the blend. It's an organoleptic to use a 50 cent word. It's a sensory thing mm -hmm. that we do as humans to do the trial blending on the blending bench in the lab and we decide how the wine tastes. Now, I'm not going to deny that probably someday there will be a computer and you're going to pour in two ounces of wine and it probably would tell you how to blend it. Now, the human sensory system, especially the nose, right, the olfactory is super sensitive. But to this date and time, it's still a human sensory thing that mm -hmm. leads us to make decisions about wine and what's the difference between good wine pretty damn good wine and let's say great wine yeah so i'm happy about that yeah <laughs> just yeah. Over, just yeah. over the hill from silicon yeah. valley epicenter <laughs> put, put a wall up put a wall yeah. up <laughs> well, I, well i love my apple computer trust me my, my apple phone i should say my apple phone yeah you know yeah. my hp screen i'm talking to you on but uh, when it comes to wine it's still and a computer is not going to grow grapes and a computer is not going to prune and a computer is not going to do that. You know, we can use technology to get information in the vineyard and the wines, but it's a human thing. As it should be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love talking about the history and I, I'm glad we had a chance to just sit and visit. This was wonderful. No, delightful. Um, I was going to maybe just since we're talking history, uh, maybe another history date that I like to share with people is 1993 okay and it's it's hard for me to even imagine this but this is 1993 this is just 30 years ago right 30 years ago is when premium wines the consumption of premium wines for the first time surpassed jug wines mm -hmm. so we talked about 67 table wines passed up dessert wines Okay, but table wines included all the jugs we talked about. Sure. Now we have premium wines surpassing jug wines. So you could almost mark the beginning of the mature California wine industry to 30 years ago. That's young. Yeah. There's nothing. It's like a boring yeah. time. Yeah. And the Europeans have been doing it for centuries and centuries. Well, I hope you guys will come by for a visit. Uh, wine Love to. Me. I treat you to wine here, or you come out to Coralitos. We don't open up that until next springtime. Gotcha. But, uh, we do have a spectacular view of the Monterey Bay. Um, and for there. me, it's right over there. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's not far. To, no. So, so how how often are you uh, in the tasting room? Um, John, like, are you are you ever there? Like, whenever say, VI, whenever VIPs like you show up, or, or give, give oh, it's a pretty low bar, Joe, but we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, that is a very low bar. Yeah. So Wednesdays, I'm usually it's my vineyard day. I'm away. Sometimes I travel, um, and um, but if you give me a heads up on Monday, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and fr um, Thursdays and Friday, sorry, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, I'm often around, especially now that harvest is over. Mm, right yeah it's fall yep. yeah and, and I, yeah, guess, I mean yeah go ahead 
No, I was just going to say, like, if I walked into your tasting room, not knowing much, you know, I was on a Santa Cruz wine trail. Um, I think I would probably have learned more about wines and your wine from you than uh, probably, you know, not to undermine the people working for you behind the, yeah, the counter yeah, there, but no, this I'm, is I'm like very be, like educational. <laughs> right. No, I'm happy to greet you. And I guess just you kind of, you guys kind of asked me, you know, ahead, where do we go? We, we made it to 90. We start thinking about, you know, the Italians use the expression centani, like when you go into a birthday party and someone's 95 or they're 90 and you say centani, let's go to 100. So one thing we're doing is we're, we're reintroducing our Bargetto brand wines to some new markets, Arizona now, Nevada now, Cabo San Lucas, Los Cabos, I should say both, both that area, I just came from there. And we're starting to reintroduce our Bargetto wines. And that's that's a form of innovation, you know, finding new customers because we can't just sell. We talked about our retail rooms. We can't just sell our wines through our retail rooms and our wine club. You know, we have to reach out to some new new customers and that's harder. And that's maybe the hardest part of the wine business is, you know, once we get off our property, you know, we have to compete. John, thanks for your time. You're uh, welcome. Incredibly you educational time. and very fun. <laughs> OK, good. <laughs> Try to do both. You know, I always say that everybody has a story, which is why we're doing this podcast. But John Bargetto has a long, really cool, interesting story, I would say. I really appreciate the time. Thank you for listening and learning a little bit about wine. Joe and I are kind of wine people, but I learned a lot. And I really, really like, and I suggest you to Google a couple of things. The, the Paris wine tasting of 1976 is when the California wines kind of surprised everybody with those five blind taste test wines that wowed everyone. That's what John talked about. I would look that up on the, on the web, Judgment in Paris. I would also strongly recommend, recommend you go to bargettowinery.com, B-A-R-G-E-T-T-O.com, and learn about their history and what they're doing. It's very, very cool stuff. And coming up on the next episode of the Area 831 podcast, we'll be talking with Courtney Laskowicz, a young inventor, entrepreneur, and a podcaster. So we'll have a lot to maybe learn from her as well. Uh, as always, you can find us anywhere where you find your favorite podcast, uh, Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. Find us there or just go to area831podcast.com. And if you have any comments, let us know. We're also on Facebook, obviously. And, um, you know, let us know if you know anybody local or who used to be local who would be an interesting subject for this podcast. You can find us at area831podcast.com. I'm Michael Gaither. Joe Bentoncourt is there in the background, and we will be talking to you soon. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for your time. Yep, we'll see you next time. <laughs>